When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After leaving teaching because of some serious burnout, she vowed to build the community she wished existed when she needed it most. She went from classroom teacher to an educational consultant, instructional designer, and six-figure business owner. Now, she's here to help you achieve happiness and work-life balance, whether inside or outside the classroom. Come join our discussion as we talk about managing teacher burnout, career transitions outside the classroom, starting a side hustle, and everything in between. Here's your host of the Teacher Career Coach Podcast and your new personal cheerleader, Daphne Gomez. Welcome to the Teacher Career Coach Podcast. I'm your host, Daphne Gomez. I have been looking to connect with former teachers in the political space for a while, and one of my favorite past colleagues that I met when I was working in the education program for Microsoft actually connected me with today's guest, Danielle Guillen on LinkedIn. Danielle has been a classroom teacher, a campaign advisor, and has held some really impressive roles on policy in relation to equity and education. If you are interested in how to get a job working in politics or education policy, this is the episode for you. Hi, Danielle. Thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having me, Daphne. I'm excited. So I wanted to interview you because I was specifically looking for people who are working in education policy making, people who have experience working in politics in general and helping to make some sort of change for educators. And one of the things that I learned about you on top of that is that you actually are a former teacher who went into these roles, which is something that I did not realize at first when I was looking at your impressive LinkedIn. So I just want to hear a little bit about your transition from working in the classroom and that very first politics position that you had. Yeah. So I worked on the Eastern side of the Navajo Nation. I was a seventh grade math and then I switched to social studies teacher. Um, And I learned a lot about myself. I, you know, come from a family where I have aunts and really close family friends who are teachers. So I knew that, you know, coming out of college, it was a profession that, you know, I loved and respect fully. And it was their teaching that I just realized like the American education system kind of broke me. (laughs) Like, and I realized that I just needed a mental health break. So I ended up moving back home thinking like, what do I do? (laughs) Like, I know that I just need a little bit of time from the classroom if I decide to go back in. I actually spent three years from like when I had decided to leave teaching to when I became a policy director, I ended up going to grad school to get my master's in public policy because I um, am one of the first in my family to, to go to college and to get a master's degree. So that was also something that was really important to me. And it was there when I went to the University of Southern California and I was doing my MPP that I really got to understand the state of education policy in a state like California. And, you know, I'm born and raised out here in Southern California. So, yeah, it took three years. Um two years in grad school. And then my first job right out of grad school was working for a school board member in Los Angeles Unified as their policy director, doing both policy and community organizing. So the first question that I know 
every teacher who's listening is going to want to know is, do you, with all of your experience working in a variety of positions, you've been a campaign manager, you've worked on these really large school district boards, do you think that going back to school for grad school is a 100% definite you have to do that? in order to make a pivot into these types of careers? Or are there other ways that you've seen former teachers kind of transition into those types of careers as well? Yeah, it definitely is not something you have to do. I think I was just in a space where I I wanted to do it because like, like I said, I'm a first generation like college student. So I got my master's degree and my dad at the time had just finished his bachelor's degree. So we actually, and then he because he was inspired by me, he ended up enrolling into an online master's. So we did it at the same time. So I think it was just, you know, for me, something that I knew I wanted to do for myself and for my family. But now that I've been with so many people who have entered into politics in so many different ways, like I don't even think you have to be politics adjacent any longer to like really influence the political sphere. So for instance, I was talking to somebody's field rep for a California state assembly member and they were an actor (laughs) prior to entering politics. And so I think that, you know, now that I have gone through this path, I don't think at all, like I I even tell, like advise my campaign staff, like if you want to do this, like there are different ways to pivot into it and to like also learn the skills needed to, to do policy work. I do think with policy making, however, you would, you definitely want to then make sure that that is something you know you want to do. And specifically when you enter like the civic sector, make sure you're as close to policy making as possible. So whether that's an advocacy role or working in an elected office or, you know, learning about policy um, via some other programs and trainings, like there's a lot of ways to enter it. I think community organizing be one of the best ways to kind of enter the policy making sphere. Do you think even as somewhat of like a stepping stone working as far as like advocating for unions, if you're in a union school district, potentially if you're a former teacher and able to get on the school board, do you think that's a good stepping stone to kind of understanding some of this world? Oh, absolutely. I think if you're a teacher, you should just run for office. (laughs) I think that if you're a former teacher, you should run for office and it doesn't matter what level of governance, like it doesn't have to be a school board. Um, In Southern California, the majority of women get their political start in school boards. But I also think that like there is a whole state legislature looking for teachers and the perspective of like specifically like women and like women teachers, like or women identifying people like there, we need you in all levels of government. And so I think if you want to run for office, like we can definitely talk through that, but that is probably one of the best ways to learn your local political map, especially because a lot of times like, I don't know, Daphne, if you felt this, but in my classroom, I felt like my whole world was my classroom and my whole world was my like students and their families. And so, I mean, those are votes. (laughs) Like those are, you know, people who work on your campaign. Those are people, you know, who are on your team. So if anything, if you are currently or have just left the classroom, those relationships you've built are, I think, put you at an advantage for running for office. I've read up some and I've read that there are nine key dimensions that are considered crucial to any comprehensive um, teacher policy. It would be like teacher education, you know, initial onboarding and then also like continuing teacher education, recruitment, retention, deployment, 
teacher employment and like working conditions, teacher reward, teacher standards, accountability, school government, I might be missing one. Did you find yourself throughout your career working on all of those different topics? Or were they more super focused on specific areas for the roles that you had? That's a great question. So I, you know, when you're in government, so working for a school board member in the second largest school system in the nation, you know, I got really good at things like facilities and facility contracts, really good at things like, you know, pensions and teacher pay. So you kind of have to know it all. And you have to make judgment calls based off of the people in your board district. I know a little bit of it all. And even when I worked nationally, the issues weren't always just like around mental health supports or like condition changes for students. Sometimes they were around teacher working conditions or just just these bigger, again, like facilities is a huge one. That's to say that, no, I didn't just specialize in one, but was able to really think through like anything that intersected a school, like traffic and having to manage, you know, the city council members or the different governmental bureaus and agencies that like oversaw that particular problem. With facilities, do you mind going more into detail? What does that mean? Like you said it was something that was really important and probably a bulk of what you were doing in that specific role. So what other types of things would you be doing as far as facilities are concerned? So in the state of California, a lot of school districts get bonds for capital improvements, which means anything you can like grab (laughs) and touch. For schools, the most, the two biggest capital improvement projects are actually the physical, what a school physically looks like, anything to do with like pavement or any any upgrades that you need for a school and technology. So things like computers. So those fall under a lot of these bonds. A lot of my role was actually around like what a school looked like. And so you had principals or teachers or Sometimes you had like law accessibility, like ADA requirements. And so you would oversee the projects that, in this case, LUSD's facilities department would do in order to improve the physical built environment of a school. So just the school site itself. Um, So, for instance, we had a school that wanted a new playground and they wanted to do some upgrades with some of the bonds money. And so we oversaw and brought in like the environmental team and like brought in some of the city people we would need in order to make sure that we were building like a compliant school ground. And so that was a lot of my roles, making sure all those people are talking, making sure we're in compliance with state and federal law and local, any local level laws, so LA County level laws, and then making sure that the work actually get, got done within a reasonable time frame. I think where I was struggling was... Like, are you building new facilities? What types of updates? And that was a perfect answer. And it's really interesting to think about, you know, you kind of got like project management experience as far as like construction goes with this type of role, which is not something that I would have anticipated you telling me when I just surface level look at like what your job titles were. I'm sure there are so many people who are, you know, thinking the same thing that it's the same question. It's probably the first question that you get from a lot of teachers. And it's probably one of the most frustrating parts of this position as a former teacher and knowing where my next question goes. But you were talking a lot about the funds that you're getting for capital improvement and for all of these facilitation, probably improvements as far as like technology goes and updating different classrooms. 
But that is a different funding bucket than the teacher pay increase. You cannot use any of those leftover funds for teacher pay. I'm sure you get this all the time, but how do we fight for a teacher pay increase when so many of the funds are being allocated for other things at the schools as well? I think this is a great question. And I think it goes back to the need to, or like localities, specifically school boards, to really fight for their state and local level and to fight in conjunction with like the state and federal delegations with their area to increase just the pot of funding for education as a whole. So in Los Angeles Unified, when I was there, it was during the 2018 teacher strike. And one of the things that was absolutely true is that teachers deserve to get paid more. Um, And that was definitely not in question. And so after that particular strike, the teachers, UTLA and the district were able to work together to put a measure on the ballot that did not pass, but it was to increase property taxes and and to change California state law because Prop 13 set property taxes, which so many school systems rely on in order to fund education. And so when we think about that, that means like people have to be buying houses, they have to be paying property taxes. Like there's so many things that go into that. And so this was to increase the property taxes for commercial properties in particular, and that would have increased the whole state allocation, but it would have really increased the district allocation of money that could go towards teacher pension, teacher pay, and other things like professional development opportunities, like those things that are so scarce in school systems right now, because a lot of budgets are going towards labor, which includes everyone, right? But also like everyone deserves to get paid more because teaching is a fundamental job and we're doing a fundamental service for society. And so I mean, it's interesting because you can, we can think through like what is sales like what would sales tax look like? We have a lot of examples, I think, from the environmental justice movement where if we tax a plastic bag and that goes towards a fund that is then allocated towards whatever environmental justice program a city wants to do, like what could we do with sales tax? Could we put sales tax towards our school system to supplement it? And I think that's where the bigger political sphere. And what it, you know, kind of prompted me to want to learn more about policymaking outside of the school board in particular was because there's so many like barriers for a school district. Because in terms of governance, we're oftentimes the most expansive. Like we expand multiple jurisdictions. Like we have joint unified school districts. Like those are multiple cities, but oftentimes the cities are not working as well as the school system is to service that particular area of constituents. And so um, things like this ballot measure failing, right, and being voted on, like that is one of those things that that's a bigger political issue. And that affects teachers, that affects students um, and what we're able to spend money on. So I particularly think that it's not educators and like people who are like pro-education and pro-funding in schools. Like I think particularly the bigger political sphere doesn't Spirits doesn't really know how much it takes to educate, how much it costs and how much it takes to educate a child and to educate somebody well. It's a lot of money. Yeah. And it's not a popular thing to vote on. Anytime someone looks and that's on the ballot, increasing taxes to go towards X, Y, or Z, no matter what the X, Y, or Z is, it's not going to be something that is necessarily popular. And that's one of the biggest challenges. How important do you think it is for people who are advocating for changes to funding or just 
to try and keep pushing more things on the ballot to increase funding, to get pay raises for teachers, to write their local government, their local legislators. I think it's fundamental to this. I mean, let's look at Prop, is it 227, the anti-bilingual proposition that happens in, I don't know, like 1998. That's one guy with an idea who had the audacity, right? And we have millions of teachers across the nation with the actual experience and expertise in school systems to be designing policy. He got enough signatures to get on the ballot and convinced enough people with like a media campaign to vote for this. And that law doesn't get overturned until recently, like a couple of years ago, but in like impacts an entire generation of like bilingual educators, children, like it really sets precedent for how powerful one person could be. And like, granted, I think he was like a millionaire, but I mean, I think that sets precedent for how powerful multiple groups of teachers or people who parents or students themselves could do to shape what political changes we demand in our for our school system. So I think to answer your question, it gets me so excited, but Yes, absolutely. And if you need help, let me know. And I think California in particular, ballot measures are so straightforward to put on the ballot that we're really just, I'm like, let's just have the audacity. Let's go. (laughs) We're ready. I think one of the saddest parts is just feeling this sense of um, being beaten down and like we're losing and nothing that we are going to be able to do is actually going to make a change. And so we don't try and fight. But We have tens of thousands of people who listen to each of these podcasts. We have a huge community of people who are all fighting for the exact same thing. For anyone who wants to put the effort in to take a couple of minutes and to, you know, believe that we can make a difference. In episode 46 of the podcast, we interview Sharon McMahon. She walks through exactly how to find your local legislators. And we actually have a template linked in there for anyone who wants to save some time on how you can actually write them. So please go to episode 46 if you want to learn a little bit more and do that. Going into a little bit deeper of a dive on just how to actually get a job doing this, because you are obviously very passionate, but this is your full-time employment as well. What are some of the career titles that teachers might be interested in looking into that would touch district-level policymaking that you've heard of? I think there's three routes into this. I think one route is your local-level like area map. And the thing that's interesting about that is that doing some sort of community organizing group or... Um, having some sort of community organizing title, I think sets you really up really nicely to be a part of the bigger advocacy space. And like in a place, and I can speak for Los Angeles and Southern California, but in a place like Los Angeles, like oftentimes these advocacy groups are, you know, pushing for very specific policy changes, but are also looked to as the experts in that particular policy lens. And that's across education, across policy groups like housing. And we know that all those issues affect what happens in our classroom for us and for our students. And so those are really good places, I think, to go for like full-time employment. If you want to be a community organizer, like I said, you have a built-in network from being a teacher and that oftentimes is one of the most powerful things. So in my role, when I worked at a nonprofit and was doing national education policy, I was working with teachers who were learning community organizing and working with their students. And oftentimes that is the voice missing at the table, the teacher voice, the student voice. And that is something that is easily accessible, especially right after 
um, you decide to leave teaching and if you decide to stay in the area that you are teaching in, that's powerful. My aunt's a principal and like her students, like she can go to any market and see a family or a student. And like, I've had this conversation with her that, you know, whenever she's ready, she's able to take that to the next level because your direct impact on the lives of people is known in your community. And so I think that sets you up really nicely to be in the advocacy space if you're looking for like an incremental increase into having like a job title. If you're wanting to dive in and you're like tired like I was after teaching and you're like, I'm angry and I'm mad and things don't move fast enough, then I would really encourage people to run for office. Oftentimes those positions are not paid, but we have seen you know, just working nationally, I've seen so many incredible teacher electeds be able to move things because they're directly experiencing things. Um, There was a group of electeds who are also in the classroom in uh, Santa Clara County that I was able to work with. And because they were experiencing the digital divide firsthand alongside their families, like they use their positional power as electeds to form a digital equity coalition that made the County Board of Supervisors in Santa Clara County reallocate like millions of dollars to their school system so that they could buy like computers for their kids. And that work is leading to Santa Clara County, like considering the first municipal owned broadband network in California. And so I think that's, you know, that's another avenue. And I think the third avenue, if you want to be more towards the policy making side of this. So When I say that, I mean, like, actually in, like, a city hall or actually in, um, like, a school board and, like, doing the research and doing the writing and doing, you know, the constituent meetings to look for community engagement roles within specific governance office. So this could be your state legislature. This could be your school board members. And I want to preface this by saying that you know, just having worked nationally, a lot of these state legislature positions are often like not fully funded. They often have one staff member. It really depends on the state and how they choose to fund these elected positions. But what I have seen a lot of people do is hold like a research position, like a analyst or even just like a coordinator role and then do all of this elected work in their free time. And so I think like, it's probably definitely a bigger conversation of like, you can teach and be an elected, but also you can pretty much do anything and be a part of the policymaking process. Because I don't know if most localities fund these roles, like a lot of times these elected roles are really volunteer. So I think it's harder for dependent on your state and dependent on like your cycle for your local elected cycle. I think but I think it's possible to both teach and be in the policymaking process um, and have that be like a full-time role. But I think like if you have a state that has like a year cycle for your state legislator looking at, at the state or Congress and roles that are community facing are really good first-time roles for teachers. So just for transparency and visibility, these are not the types of positions that you are leaving the classroom, you're getting into this and that assumption that many people might have that anyone in politics is just making a ton of money and they're not working a lot. This is not that role. This is for someone who is intrinsically motivated and wants to make a change. However, you're going to still have 
some of those negatives of low pay and not a lot of support that you may have in the classroom. Did you find yourself burning out in these new positions in the same way that you were as a teacher? I would say it was less severe. When I left my classroom, I needed a full two years just to like get my mental health back in order. Like it was, I, I'm preaching to the choir. It was so taxing that like, and I saw so many things happen to people that I loved, my students and their families that I physically just needed a break. Um, and I don't want to go too much into the specifics, but just witnessed a lot of like what we asked families and teachers to take on. And one of the reasons I actually jumped into policy work, um, not really knowing a lot about it, but knowing that like I was going to be better than the superintendent that I had in Gallup McKinley County Schools was because he had done this thing my second year teaching where he rearranged all the principals. And so he had put principals who, and my district was 200 mile, a 200 mile radius. <laughs> like, So he put principals from one part of the district to the very other part of the district in hopes that they would leave without severance packages. And I just thought like there has to be a better way. Like there has to be a better way to honor like educators, to honor teachers and principals. Like there has to be a better way than like all of these other people making decisions for me in my classroom that negatively impacted at least me and for sure my students. And we saw that, you know, just with the change in leadership. And so that I think for me was the final straw near the end of my second year, because I I truly thought like I was going to be in the classroom a really long time. My aunt was in the classroom for seven years before she transitioned into administration. Like she is my favorite person (laughs) in this world. So I really thought like I was going to be a lifelong teacher and I was really excited. And I think that was like the end of, that was the last straw for me to be like, absolutely not. I don't know what's happening at that school board level. I don't know what's happening at the federal government level, but I know that like my heart is with my students and with my families. And I know that like this pisses me off. And so I left really heartbroken and I, you know, lived with my grandma, tutored part-time, tried to get my life together. Cause I just didn't, unfortunately I didn't come from a family where like I had anyone to ask. And so I remember calling like one of my old college um, sorority sisters and being like, you work in politics, like, how did you get there? And, you know, her answer was very typical for what it's like. She's like, you have to do free labor, and then you get in, and then you can be a part of it. And and I, like many people who are listening, like, didn't have that luxury. Like, I don't have a luxury to just volunteer for something. And so, you know, that is kind of where I started. And, And then I landed on grad school, like I said previously, and kind of then learned that, like, in bigger cities, there's a lot of roles. And so I can be more specific there. And then in smaller municipalities, more suburban and more rural roles, we that's where we see a lot of people, you know, due to two jobs in order to make sure like, they're part of the, the civic sector there. So you went into the roles really working directly with school districts, and then you've since then even pivoted and started working as a campaign manager. Is that correct? Yes. I managed a whole campaign team of 30 people, not as hard as the 200 students I taught, but (laughs) definitely a large group of people. Is that, if you mind me asking, something that is paid or volunteer work as a campaign manager? 
And that is actually a great point. So campaigns can be both paid and volunteered. Mine happened to be paid. And how long did you work for them? I was on for a full year. So I was on the campaign for a full year. And then towards the end, it became really apparent that I wasn't going to be able to work my full-time job and do this campaign like wholeheartedly. And so there's a lot of factors involved, but ended up being really grateful that I was able to come on full-time to the campaign. And it was really life-changing and of an experience and not something that I was not something I'd ever imagined doing in the civic sector. And in fact, was something that I was still really nervous about doing. Um, yeah, I was a city council campaign in Los Angeles for Los Angeles city council, a hundred thousand voters. There's a, you know, we got like the LA times endorsement, which is huge. It was a really, really cool experience. Um, raised over $300,000, like fundraised. It was massive, but it was such a cool experience. Had a campaign team of 30 people, mostly from the community, mostly from backgrounds like being first-generation American, being undocumented currently or formerly, mostly women of color or like queer youth. So it was like a campaign that I feel is very representative of America and of like, you know, the people that we teach in the you know, our families. And so it was, it's been a really cool experience. It ended the first week of June and I'm still reveling from how amazing it was. For that role, did you apply like you would apply for any other job? Did you get it through networking? How does someone land a campaign manager role? I feel like I've watched the TV show Veep and I I think I know politics from like a couple of really good TV shows and that's it. I think it's pretty accurate. So I got this one meeting the candidate through a friend. And I think, you know, what I will say though, for anyone that's interested in thing and are like how I was when I first started this journey. A lot of times, like just cold emailing people that you admire goes a long way. Looking at the organizations in your area, thinking you do something cool and I'm and asking for 15 minutes of their time and explaining like, I'm a teacher. I'm looking to pivot from my classroom. I'm looking to pivot into advocacy or policy or elected leadership. Could I talk to you for 15 minutes on how you did that? goes a long way in building like a social network. And, and actually, when I was in grad school, that is something that I took really seriously. So, you know, where I grew up in the Inland Empire in California, like things like Democratic Club meetings, or, you know, your political party meetings, those things are really obscure, they change their, you know, everyone's friends, I had no idea how to get involved there. And when I moved to Los Angeles, those things are really open to the public, they're really transparent. And so, I was able to go and just start meeting people and talking to people. And oftentimes that's all it took was like deepening that relationship and asking somebody to dinner or somebody to go on a phone call during like your lunch break or, you know, those things that I know like are sacrifices of the moment because like your time is precious, but also go a long way to helping you build a network of people that you really identify with, which I think is the key here. For me, I, you know, do equity-based policy work or like social impact policy work. So it was really, you know, that was something I was really interested in doing. So I think that's like definitely where to start. I met Dulce through a friend. And um, one of the things that really drew me to her campaign was that I had, you know, moved back to the Inland Empire to be with my grandma during the pandemic and found myself really enraged with the school systems and ended up running for school board and losing there. And when I thought like about you know, my next steps, I thought, you know, I should come back to LA. This is 
where I've built like my social network and where I've built a lot of my friendships just as an adult. And when I met her and she had this really ambitious goal, LA City Council is like not for the faint of heart. (laughs) Um, In terms of campaign world, I thought like, let me be a part of this because it's so hard for women of color to get campaign staff to get funding, to get endorsements. And, you know, that was something I felt as well when I did my run for school board. Like I said, though, like if you want to be involved in a campaign, it really takes showing up. We had people message us on social media and then become a part of the campaign team. We had people find us on TikTok and then be a part of volunteer and be a part of the campaign team. Like I took, like my staff had never been a part of a campaign team before, but because like, you're willing and you're willing to put in the work needed and you're willing to support that particular candidate. Like it's really easy to then get involved in campaign life. And so like none of my staff knew each other beforehand, but now they all like, like we just went to someone's Ginson, like little sister's Ginsonietta, like this weekend, like it really is initially very scary, but a lot of it is just putting yourself out there and connecting with a candidate via social media because you don't realize how valuable just even like an hour of phone call, like phone banking or text banking is for that candidate. Um, And it's really essential to the democratic process. So that I think is a great way to get involved and to know somebody's team and to know people in that political sphere. And that networking continues to help you if this is like the actual area that you know you want to work in for the long term. Many of those people are going to go into their own different directions, but keeping in contact with them, building those authentic connections. This is now like a solid network of people who are aligned with your values that are probably going to be working in new areas aligned with your values that you can reach back out to in two years or five years, if there are opportunities that sync up with what you're looking for, right? No, definitely. I didn't, I think something I didn't realize before going into campaign world was that everyone knows each other. So like just an example of this, like I have a lot of friends here in LA who met on, you know, the Obama campaign and like are now since married, but that whole world knows each other. So for a lot of even my time as like a political, like a policy director, I was like, oh shoot, I'm catching up because so many of these people knew each other in college volunteering for campaigns. But like I said, like as long as you show up to like do the work on a campaign, you're going to also start meeting all of these people. And and a lot of times that's how not only does everyone know each other, but that's how they continue working in like the bigger campaign political sector. So yes, just even like if you meet, yeah, it's just worth it. Okay. So this is like, I'm now somewhat connected to Obama is what you're telling me. Like through like Kevin Bacon, six degrees of separation. I now have a, I can maybe find Obama on LinkedIn and try and connect with him. Maybe like 10 degrees, but yeah, I'm, we're on there. I'm moving up and you're coming with me, Daphne. I, we will meet the Obamas one day. <laughs> so you working on this campaign, it ended. It's somewhat of like a contract position as far as how long it's going to last, but it did end up with helping you find a new opportunity. Isn't that right? It did. So I'm, I'm going to be working as a senior analyst for a social impact um, consulting firm. It's a very, it's a woman owned, they do equity based, like social, well, social impact consulting. So they're equity based, which like I said, which is important to me, but It was really random because I met 
the owner through another connection with someone who previously worked with me in the education policy space. So it felt really happenstance and she's great. Jessica's great. She used to be a community organizer. She's worked in LA. She's worked in LA politics. And so we had a lot in common, even though her and I had not yet overlapped. But I think, yes, to your point like that was really cool to just have like one to two people that we both knew that we both could like connect with each other on. Um, and in finding this role too, because it wasn't like a job posting that was like super posted. It was really like kind of a word of mouth thing. Do you have any insight into what your day-to-day duties and responsibilities would be for this position? Yeah. So I'll be, you know, covering a lot of our governmental programs work. So I'll be working on a couple of key projects that departments within different governments across California are wanting to do. Um, So for instance, one of the projects that I will be closely working on, although I don't quite know like what the day-to-day looks like on this, will be working with a department within Los Angeles City to help them just really strategically think through the different supports that they offer and help them really fine-tune some of the programs that they have to make sure that, you know, what they say they want to do is actually going to do the things that they think it's going to do within how they set up that particular program. A lot of consulting life, I think, (laughs) though I start Thursday, but a lot of consulting life is really, you know, very similar to the work that I did on the just at the district. A lot of talking to people, a lot of researching, a lot of making sense and meaning for other people. And a lot of just like recommendations that, you know, in this case, governmental agencies will take up. And then seeing through like implementation of that. So like making sure that things are, like I said, things are doing what they say that they need to do and like what we know they need to do. So that's kind of like the day-to-day, very similar to policy director role stuff. You are so well-versed and knowledgeable about everything that we've talked about. This is more of a weird hypothetical question, not going to be easy to answer, but do you think that past teacher you would recognize this version of yourself? Somewhat. I mean, I remember in my classroom, in my school district, we had what I would consider a major violation of IDEA, like the legislation for students with disabilities at the federal level. And I remember thinking like, this is so unjust. My students get one semester of social studies and one semester of science. And like, to me, I knew everyone was working super hard. Like we were super understaffed. We didn't have enough teachers. Like we were doing everything we could. And I was like, there has to be a better way. And so I remember being really scared, researching it. (laughs) Like, I had no idea what it was, but I knew like, this was what decided, you know, the environment for my students with disabilities. I read it and I was like, my gut is telling me that this is, we're not doing this right. <laughs> like That is like what my gut is telling me. And so I asked some people, like I called the number <laughs> like, and I was like, what does this look like normally? I read some of the papers and I brought it to my assistant principal and I was like, hey, I know y'all are doing the best you can for kids, but I think we're doing this wrong. And I don't know if this is the best we can do. And so then we ended up working, you know, it was me and a couple other teachers that ended up working with scheduling because obviously we had vacancies 
a lot of them. And so, you know, part of that is why I switched over to social studies because that was an open role. And I knew that we could get a math teacher and we were able to get a really good math teacher so that my students could have a full year of history and a full year of science. And so it was a really complicated problem to solve with scheduling, but, you know, it was something that I think that was the, you know, the impetus for like, I think I could do this at a bigger level. I at least care enough to talk through this. And so I think my teacher self would be very proud of just the policies that I've been able to help pass. The number of teachers that I've trained on community organizing and policy and like the number of teachers who, you know, through going through a policy win with me have now pivoted to other roles within the civic sector, like the bigger political sector, like I know should be really proud, but I also think that, you know, I just had a little bit of that. I just didn't have the network of people telling me that like, that's what all you needed. Like you just needed that. So, Oh, that's such a sweet question. But yeah. So I think she would be really proud. I just feel like for myself personally, I always, I came from a situation where I was beaten down and told, you know, you're not even being a good teacher. Nothing that you're doing is good enough. You need to be constantly doing more, doing more, doing more. And so it was so hard for me to recognize any value in myself. And so I just came into whatever I did post-teaching with such imposter syndrome that Anytime people even still try and compliment me on where I am, it's really hard for me to wrap my brain around it. And I know that my teacher self would always probably say, oh, I don't know. I don't know if you're even going to make it, you know, as a teacher, just based on a couple of parents' opinions of you. I'm so blown away by so many teachers on what they do post-teaching because all of us are highly educated, highly passionate women. Most of the people who are listening do identify as women and they are lifelong learners and they constantly are pushing themselves to grow. And you are no exception to that. One of the, you know, most impressive people that I've met. And I'm just so happy that I've been able to interview you. But I want to end with one question about one thing that you are doing that you are very passionate about that we have not talked about at all. And that is STEM in the park. Can you share a little bit with the audience about your work with STEM in the park? Yeah, first, I want to go back to the important point that you made, which is that, like, I too felt like I couldn't do anything right in my classroom. Like, I was burnt out. And I think part of that is the impossible standards we put on a profession that the majority of women embody. And so I think there's a lot there. But I want to tell anyone who's listening is like, if you feel that it's not that you're not amazing, it's that the expectations that we put in this role are not humanly possible for anyone to fulfill like teaching forever and will always be like the hardest job and also the one that like I think through and I think like I'm always so impressed by people who have stayed in the classroom for so long because it's not especially in this pandemic it is not a profession that like has anything or those feelings have nothing to do with like your work ability has everything to do with how this the profession is set up I want to say that very explicitly and I want to to say that like you know I miss teaching Daphne like I miss it every day and I also know that I love the work that I get to do in policy and policy design and advocating for people and or working with them to advocate for themselves and making sure that people are listening and changing systems 
And I also love that moment where a student learns something and like their whole world lights up. That is something that I yearn for. And so I had a very honest conversation with myself when I was at LAUSD and I was like, you know, having been a math teacher, I can no longer sit back and not give teachers like what they need or not provide students with the educational experiences. And so STEM in the Park has looked a lot of different ways from first making bilingual STEM experiences accessible to um, low-income communities in Southern California to taking a group of students through the advocacy process and having them advocate for like materials in science and STEM that they know teachers and they deserve for hands-on learning to this third iteration, which I'm really excited for, which is kind of a joint of it all. That's because I love teaching. Like I love that experience. The system of education is not one that I personally know that I can handle just mentally, physically, spiritually. And so I started STEM in the Park because I still needed that space. Like it's still a part of me. It's why I went into education initially. And so STEM in the Park works in areas that are what we classify as STEM deserts. So these are places where there's no like after school, like accessible, like after school activities or there's not a lot of budgets for like hands-on science learning. And we kind of try to fill in the gap to the best of our ability to meet even the language, like accessibility of that area. So we have worked with over 450 students and their families or children and their families. Um, we have had kids do public comment at LUSD for more like science resources um, and try to reallocate budget. So we are pushing to make sure there's a lot more materials for teachers when it comes to like, you know, the sciences and mathematics. Um, but yeah, that's just like a little bit. I'm really excited about this next iteration, but I will say it's because I still miss teaching. Like I still love it and I needed something to do it with. Yeah, I know there are so many teachers, maybe potentially even teachers in the Los Angeles area who are listening to this and former teachers that might want to get involved. Is there a best way for them to find STEM in the Park and see if they can help in any way? Yes. If you go to STEM in the Park's Instagram, just shoot me a DM. That's where we're at. Um, we just got our 501c3 status. So we're officially a nonprofit. So I'm officially starting the first round of like fundraising. And so that is kind of where we're at. If you want to help, I will be planning activities for this summer. And so, yeah, love would love all the support. And even if you have questions like what it's like to start your own nonprofit, the IRS process has taken so long from when I first started this to now that happy to answer those questions for anyone who wants to found their own nonprofit. Thank you so much, Danielle, for being here. This has been such a great conversation. I just appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us. No, thank you. I love this. I love everything about it. If you all need anything, you feel free to reach out to me. My personal social media is just Danielle.Gian. I am on Twitter and Instagram and very accessible. So thank you so much. I want to give a huge thank you to Danielle for coming on and sharing her story and advice for this audience. We've interviewed another amazing former teacher who's doing great work, Sharon McMahon, and we did a deep dive into how to write your local legislators to fight for funding changes and higher pay for teachers. So I recommend that you head back over to episode 46 to learn what you can do to help. 
Thank you so much for listening to the Teacher Career Coach Podcast, and we'll see you on the very next episode.